Section 7 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 20 The Ecclesiastical Titles Bill, Part 2. The opening of Parliament came. The ministry had to do something. No ministry that ever held power in England could have attempted to meet the House of Commons without some project of a measure to allay public excitement. On February 4, 1851, the Queen in person opened Parliament. Her speech contained some sentences which were listened to with the profoundest interest because they referred to the question which was agitating all England. The recent assumption of certain ecclesiastical titles conferred by a foreign power has excited strong feelings in this country and large bodies of my subjects have presented addresses to me expressing attachment to the throne and praying that such assumptions should be resisted i have assured them of my resolution to maintain the rights of my crown and the independence of the nation against all encroachments from whatever quarter they may proceed. I have at the same time expressed my earnest desire and firm determination under God's blessing to maintain unimpaired the religious liberty which is so justly prized by the people of this country. How little of inclination to any measures dealing unfairly with Roman Catholics was in the mind of the Queen herself may be seen from a letter in which, when the excitement was at its height, she had expressed her opinion to her aunt, the Duchess of Gloucester. I would never have consented to anything which breathed a spirit of intolerance. Sincerely Protestant as I always have been and always shall be, and indignant as I am at those who call themselves Protestants while they are in fact quite the contrary, I much regret the unchristian and intolerant spirit exhibited by many people at the public meetings. I cannot bear to hear the violent abuse of the Catholic religion, which is so painful and so cruel toward the many good and innocent Roman Catholics. However, we must hope and trust this excitement will soon cease, and that the wholesome effect of it upon our own church will be lasting. The papal aggression question, Lord Palmerston wrote to his brother just before the opening of Parliament, will give us some trouble and give rise to stormy debates. Our difficulty will be to find out a measure which will satisfy reasonable Protestants without violating those principles of liberal toleration which we are pledged to. I think we shall succeed. The thing itself, in truth, is little or nothing, and does not justify the irritation. What has goaded the nation is the manner, insolent and ostentatious, in which it was done. We must bring in a measure. The country will not be satisfied without some legislative enactment. We shall make it as gentle as possible. The violent party will object to it for its mildness and will endeavor to drive us farther. A measure brought in only because something must be done to satisfy public opinion is not likely to be a very valuable piece of legislation. The ministry in this case was embarrassed by the fact that they really did not particularly want to do anything except to satisfy public opinion for the moment and get rid of all the controversy. They were placed between two galling fires. On the one side were the extreme Protestants to whom Palmerston alluded as violent, and who were eager for severe measures against the Catholics, and on the other were the Roman Catholic supporters of the ministry, 
who protested against any legislation whatever on the subject. It would have been simply impossible to find any safe and satisfactory path of compromise which all could consent to walk. The ministry did the best they could to frame a measure which should seem to do something and yet do little or nothing. Two or three days after the meeting of Parliament, Lord John Russell introduced his bill to prevent the assumption by Roman Catholics of titles taken from any territory or place within the United Kingdom. The measure proposed to prohibit the use of all such titles under penalty, and to render void all acts done by or bequests made to persons under such titles. The Roman Catholic Relief Act imposed a penalty of £100 for every assumption of a title taken from an existing see. Lord John Russell proposed now to extend the penalty to the assumption of any title whatever from any place in the United Kingdom. The reception which was given to Lord John Russell's motion for leave to bring in this bill was not encouraging. Usually, leave to bring in a bill is granted as a matter of course. Some few general observations of extemporaneous and guarded criticism are often made, but the common practice is to offer no opposition. On this occasion, however, it was at once made manifest that no measure, however gentle, to use Lord Palmerston's word, would be allowed to pass without obstinate opposition. Mr. Roebuck described the bill as one of the meanest, pettiest, and most futile measures that ever disgraced even bigotry itself. Mr. Bright called it little, paltry, and miserable, a mere sham to bolster up church ascendancy. Mr. Disraeli declared that he would not oppose the introduction of the bill, but he spoke of it in language of as much contempt as Mr. Roebuck and Mr. Bright had used, calling it a mere piece of petty persecution. Was it for this, Mr. Disraeli scornfully asked, that the Lord Chancellor trampled on a cardinal's hat amid the patriotic acclamations of the Metropolitan Municipality? Sir Robert Ingalls, on the part of the more extreme Protestants, objected to the bill on the ground that it did not go far enough. The debate on the motion for leave to bring in the bill was renewed for night after night, and the fullest promise of an angry and prolonged resistance was given. Yet so strong was the feeling in favor of some legislation that when the division was taken, 395 votes were given for the motion, and only 63 against it. The opponents of the measure had on their side not only all the prominent champions of religious liberty, like Sir James Graham, Mr. Gladstone, Mr. Cobden, and Mr. Bright, but also Protestant politicians of such devotion to the interests of the Church as Mr. Roundell Palmer, afterward Lord Selborne, and Mr. Beresford Hope, and, of course, they had with them all the Irish Catholic members. Yet the motion for leave to bring in the bill was carried by this overwhelming majority. The ministers had at all events ample justification, so far as parliamentary tactics were concerned, for the introduction of their measure. If, however, we come to regard the ministerial proposal as a piece of practical legislation, the case to be made for them is not strong, nor is the abortive result of their efforts at all surprising. They set out on the enterprise without any real interest in it, or any particular confidence in its success. It is probable that Lord John Russell alone of all the ministers had any expectation of a satisfactory result to come of the piece of legislation they were attempting. 
We have seen what Lord Palmerston thought on the whole subject. The ministers were in fact in the difficulty of all statesmen who bring in a measure, not because they themselves are clear as to its necessity or its efficacy, but because they find that something must be done to satisfy public feeling, and they do not know of anything better to do at the moment. The history of the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill was therefore a history of blunder, unlucky accident, and failure from the moment it was brought in until its ignominious and ridiculous repeal many years after, and when its absolute impotence had been not merely demonstrated, but forgotten. The government at first, as we have seen, resolved to impose a penalty on the assumption of ecclesiastical titles by Roman Catholic prelates from places in the United Kingdom, and to make null and void all acts done or bequests made in virtue of such titles. But they found that it would be absolutely impossible to apply such legislation to Ireland. In that country, a Catholic hierarchy had long been tolerated, and all the functions of a regular hierarchy had been in full and formal operation. To apply the new measure to Ireland would have been virtually to repeal the Roman Catholic Relief Act and restore the penal laws. On the other hand, the ministers were not willing to make one law against titles for England and another for Ireland. They were driven, therefore, to the course of withdrawing two of the stringent clauses of the bill and leaving it little more than a mere declaration against the assumption of unlawful titles. But by doing this, they furnished stronger reasons for opposition to both of the two very different parties who had hitherto denounced their way of dealing with the crisis. Those who thought the bill did not go far enough before were, of course, indignant at the proposal to shear it of whatever little force it had originally possessed. They, on the other hand, who had opposed it as a breach of the principle of religious liberty, could now ridicule it with all the greater effect on the ground that it violated a principle without even the pretext of doing any practical good as a compensation. In the first instance, the ministry might plead that the crisis was exceptional, and that it called for exceptional measures, that something must be done, and that they could not stand on ceremony even with the principle of religious liberty when the interest of the state was at stake. Now they left it in the power of their opponents to say that they were breaking a principle for the sake of introducing a non-entity. The debates were long, fierce, and often passionate. The bill, even cut down as it was, had a vast majority on its side, but some of the most illustrious names in the House of Commons were recorded against it. By far the most eloquent voices in the House were raised to condemn it. The Irish Roman Catholic members set up a persistent opposition to it, and up to a certain period of its progress put in requisition all the forms of the house to impede it. This part of the story ought not to be passed over without mention of the fact that among other effects produced by the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill, perhaps the most distinct, was the creation of the most worthless band of agitators who ever pretended to speak with the voice of Ireland. These were the men who were called in the house the Pope's Brass Band and who were regarded with as much dislike and distrust by all intelligent Roman Catholics and Irish nationalists as by the most inveterate Tories. These men leaped into influence by their denunciations of the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill. They were successful for a time in palming themselves off as patriots upon Irish constituencies. 
they thundered against the bill, they put in motion every mechanism of delay and obstruction, some of them were really clever and eloquent, most of them were loud-voiced, they had a grand and heaven-sent opportunity given to them, and they made use of it. They had a leader, the once famous John Sadlier. This man possessed marked ability and was further gifted with an unscrupulous audacity at least equal to his ability. He went to work deliberately to create for himself a band of followers by whose help he might mount to power. He was a financial swindler as well as a political adventurer. By means of the money he had suddenly acquired and by virtue of his furious denunciations of the anti-Catholic policy of the government, he was for a time able to work the Irish popular constituencies so as to get his own followers into the house and become for the hour a sort of little O'Connell. He had with him some two or three honest men whom he deluded into a belief in the sincerity of himself and his gang of swindling adventurers, and it is only fair to say that by far the most eloquent man of the party appears to have been one of those on whom Sadlier was thus able to impose. Mr. Sadlier's band afterwards came to a sad grief. He committed suicide himself to escape the punishment of his frauds. Some of his associates fled to foreign countries and hid themselves under feigned names. James Sadlier, brother and accomplice of John, was among these and underwent that rare mark of degradation in our days, a formal expulsion from the House of Commons. The Pope's Brass Band, and its subsequent history, culminating in the suicide on Hampstead Heath, was about the only practical result of the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill. The bill reduced in stringency, as has been described, made, however, some progress through the House. It was interrupted at one stage by events which had nothing to do with its history the government got into trouble of another kind. At the opening of the session, Mr. Disraeli introduced a motion to the effect that the agricultural distress of the country called upon the government to introduce without delay some measures for its relief. This motion was in fact the last spasmodic cry of protection. Many influential politicians still believed that the cause of protection was not wholly lost, that a reaction was possible that the free trade doctrine would prove a failure and have to be given up, and they regarded Mr. Disraeli's as a very important motion, calling for a strenuous effort in its favor. The government treated the motion as one for restored protection and threw all their strength into the struggle against it. They won, but only by a majority of fourteen. A few days after, Mr. Locke King, member for East Surrey, asked for leave to bring in a bill to assimilate the county franchise to that existing in boroughs. Lord John Russell opposed the motion and the government was defeated by 100 votes against 52. It was evident that this was only what is called a snap vote, that the House was taken by surprise, and that the result in no wise represented the general feeling of Parliament. But still it was a vexatious occurrence for the Ministry already humiliated by the small majority they had obtained on Disraeli's motion. Their budget had already been received with very general marks of dissatisfaction. The Chancellor of the Exchequer only proposed a partial and qualified repeal of the window tax, an impost which was justly detested, and he continued the income tax. The budget was introduced shortly before Mr. Locke King's motion, 
and every day that had elapsed since its introduction only more and more developed the public dissatisfaction with which it was regarded. Under all these circumstances, Lord John Russell felt that he had no alternative but to tender his resignation to the Queen. Leaving his ecclesiastical titles bill suspended in air, he announced that he could no longer think of carrying on the government of the country. The question was, who should succeed him? The Queen sent for Lord Stanley, afterwards Lord Derby. Lord Stanley offered to do his best to form a government, but was not at all sanguine about the success of the task, nor eager to undertake it. He even recommended that before he made any experiment, Lord John Russell should try if he could not do something by getting some of the Peelites, as they were then beginning to be called, the followers of Sir Robert Peel, who had held with him to the last, to join him, and thus patch up the government anew. This was tried and failed. The Peelites would have nothing to do with the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill, and Lord John Russell would not go on without it. On the other hand, Lord Aberdeen, the chief of the Peelites in the House of Lords, would not attempt to form a ministry of his own, frankly acknowledging that in the existing temper of the country it would be impossible for any government to get on without legislating in some way on the papal aggression. There was nothing for it but for Lord Stanley to try. He tried without hope, and of course he was unsuccessful. The position of parties was very peculiar. It was impossible to form any combination which could really agree upon anything. There were three parties out of which a ministry might be formed. These were the Whigs, the Conservatives, and the Peelites. The Peelites were a very rising and promising body of men. Among them were Sir James Graham, Lord Canning, Mr. Gladstone, Mr. Sidney Herbert, Mr. Cardwell, and some others almost equally well known. Only these three groups were fairly in the competition for office, for the idea of a ministry of radicals and Manchester men was not then likely to present itself to any official mind. But how could anyone put together a ministry formed from a combination of these three? The Peelites would not coalesce with the Tories because of the protection question, to which Mr. Disraeli's motion had given a new semblance of vitality, and because of Lord Stanley's own declaration that he still regarded the policy of free trade as only an experiment. The Peelites would not combine with the Whigs because of the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill. The Conservatives would not disavow protective ideas. The Whigs would not give up the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill. No statesman, therefore, could form a government without having to count on two great parties being against him on one question or the other. All manner of delays took place. The Duke of Wellington was consulted, Lord Lansdowne was consulted, the wit of man could suggest nothing satisfactory. The conditions for extracting any satisfactory solution did not exist. There was nothing better to be done than to ask the ministers who had resigned to resume their places and muddle on as best they could. It is not enough to say that there was nothing better to be done. There was nothing else to be done. They were at all events still administering the affairs of the country, and no one would relieve them of the task. Ipso facto, they had to stay. The ministers returned to their places and resumed the ecclesiastical titles bill. It was then that they made the change in its conditions which has already been mentioned, 
and thus created new arguments against them on both sides of the House of Commons. They struck out of the bill every word that might appear like an encroachment on the Roman Church within the sphere of its own ecclesiastical operations, and made it simply an act against the public and ostentatious assumption of illegal titles. The bill was wrangled over until the end of June, and then a large number, some seventy of the Irish Catholic members, publicly seceded from the discussion and announced that they could take no further part in the divisions. On this, some of the strongest opponents of the papal aggression, led by Sir Frederick Thesiger, afterwards Lord Chelmsford, brought in a series of resolutions intended to make the bill more stringent than it had been even as originally introduced. The object of the resolutions was principally to give the power of prosecuting and claiming a penalty to anybody, provided he obtained the consent of the law officers of the Crown, and to make penal the introduction of bulls. The government opposed the introduction of these amendments and were put in the awkward position of having to act as antagonists of the party and the country who represented the strongest hostility to the papal aggression. Thus, for the moment, the author of the Durham letter was seemingly converted into a champion of the Roman Catholic side of the controversy. His championship was ineffective. The Irish members took no part in the controversy, and the government were beaten by the ultra-Protestant party on every division. Lord John Russell was bitterly taunted by various of his opponents, and was asked with indignation why he did not withdraw the bill when it ceased to be any longer his own scheme. He probably thought by this time that it really made little matter what bill was passed, so long as any bill was passed, and that the best thing to do was to get the controversy out of the way by any process. He did not, therefore, withdraw the bill, although Sir Frederick Thesiger carried all his stringent clauses. When the measure came on for a third reading, Lord John Russell moved the omission of the added clauses, but he was defeated by large majorities. The bill was done with, so far as the House of Commons was concerned. After an eloquent and powerful protest from Mr. Gladstone against the measure, as one disparaging to the great principle of religious freedom, the bill was read a third time. It went up to the House of Lords, was passed there without alteration, although not without opposition, and soon after received the royal assent. This was practically the last the world heard about it. In the Roman Church, everything went on as before. The new cardinal archbishop still called himself Archbishop of Westminster. Some of the Irish prelates made a point of ostentatiously using their territorial titles in letters addressed to the ministers themselves. The bitterness of feeling, which the papal aggression and the legislation against it had called up, did not indeed pass away very soon. It broke out again and again sometimes in the form of very serious riot. It turned away at many an election the eyes and minds of the constituencies from questions of profound and genuine public interest to dogmatic controversy and the hates of jarring sectaries. It furnished political capital for John Sadlier and his band and kept them flourishing for a while, and it set up in the Irish popular mind a purely imaginary figure of Lord John Russell, who became regarded as the malign enemy of the Catholic faith and of all religious liberty. But save for the quarrels aroused at the time, the act of the Pope and the act of Parliament were alike dead letters. Nothing came of the papal bull. England was not restored to the communion of the Roman Catholic Church. 
the archbishop of canterbury and the bishop of london retained their places and their spiritual jurisdiction as before cardinal wiseman remained only a prelate of roman catholics on the other hand the ecclesiastical titles act was never put in force nobody troubled about it many years after in eighteen seventy one it was quietly repealed it died in such obscurity that the outer public hardly knew whether it was above ground or below certainly if the whole agitation showed that england was thoroughly protestant it also showed that english protestants had not much of the persecuting spirit they had no inclination to molest their catholic neighbours and only asked to be let alone the pope they believed had insulted them they resented the insult that was all End of section 7